Hello everyone and welcome back to the island, finally. Very happy to have Deserted Island Dice returning. You'll notice the slight name change, but that's just because we want to keep this series going. We have a very special guest this time. It's Gary from Ardwolf Slayer. Sit back and enjoy it. Take in Gary's breadth of knowledge and history of the historical gaming hobby. It's really quite impressive to hear Gary talk about just not only his own progression through the hobby, but just his knowledge of of things that came before my interest in the hobby. Enjoy. Welcome back to the island, everyone. It's been a while. Lucky for us and not so lucky for them. I see some castaways on the horizon. Tonight, washing ashore on a raft made of thousands and thousands of tiny little cardboard corners. We are joined by Gary probably better known as Ardwolf. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the island. Nice to be here. Thanks for asking me. <laughs> you say that now. Well, that's true. I'm, I'm going to have questions about this island later. <laughs> well, there's only a few of us so far, and I think we established, like, uh, uh, ScarJo is on the island. We have some musicians on the island. Like, there's things are fine here. As long as there's Game. people to play games with, we'll be okay. Yeah, assume the best. Well, Gary, I don't want you wear many hats, and I could take a stab at some of them, and I would probably miss them. So, for our listeners' sake, why don't you go ahead and just introduce yourself? Who are you? Uh, so, my name is Gary. I run a YouTube channel, and there's a blog, too, that actually predates the YouTube channel by quite a while, but I post to the blog probably an average of about once a year nowadays. Um, so, we might as well just never mention it again. Uh, but I'm probably best known for the YouTube channel Ardwolf's Lair, which it predominantly has dealt over the last five to ten years with board war games. Um, I say about 95% of my content is related to war game or historical game topics. Uh, the remainder devoted to science fiction stuff and maybe a little bit of RPG stuff here and there. Awesome. That's not all, though. I think I think it, we would be remiss not to mention that you are the director of the Charles S. Roberts Awards. This is true as of October 2022, but I wasn't I don't like to I, I don't want to like. Hold it over anybody, right? Because that would be lame. Well, yeah, but uh, well, I'll just go ahead and say it for you because no one wants to. And, and I get this. No one wants to toot their own horn. I, I think what you've done over the last six months now is uh, is really fantastic. I'm, I'm excited for the direction and all the hard work you've put into Charles S. Roberts. So it's it's awesome to see someone passionate do that. Uh, so good job and look forward to the future with it. Well, I appreciate that. And we're you know, we're just trying to make it better, build stability for the future. Uh, and it's not, of course, just me. Uh, I immediately put, put other people to work uh, <laughs> as soon as I took over because I'm like, I can't do all this. This is crazy. So let's uh, let's oh, you get to do this and you get to do ah, you. You would be good at that. So so we have managed to farm out some of the effort. Uh, and and that by itself is is a is a big step and, and has helped a lot. So I felt like it went pretty well for the 2021 awards we were it was not without its challenges and hiccups and things that we believe can be done better in the future but uh, you know if we if we continue to improve each year i'll be satisfied what do you 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 were kind enough to have harold and i on to talk about um the summit award and the historical board game awards respectively mm -hmm. 
and you you kind of fielded a bunch of questions at us. And what I kind of wanted to start with is what what do you see the role of and this can be broader than more games, but what's what's the point of even having awards? Like where where do you put value in them? Because when things were kind of being restructured, I saw some like really hot takes on what the the even point of the CSRs were, and I just didn't agree with them. But and that didn't come from you. That was just random YouTube comments or random talking heads. So what's the purpose in your eyes? Of so of I mean of awards in general. I think this is a completely legitimate question to ask. And you can ask it in general, what is the point of awards? And in specifics, as in what is the point of this particular award, whether that's a, a group of awards like the Charles S. Roberts Awards or the Oscars or whatever, or a singular award like the SD HistCon Summit Award, where it's given to one game at the end of the day. Um, partly it's, it's uh, out of a desire to recognize and to see recognition of excellence in whatever field we're talking about, right? Um, many people will use, well, I don't know about many, you know, there's no metric on this, right? There are, there, but there are somebody out there will use the, the or an Origins Award or a, uh, a CSR Award or an Oscar or whatever to kind of get an idea, you know, learn about something that they didn't know anything about. Um, so we're, we're, we're trying to highlight excellence and, you know, that's not going to be a perfect process as it isn't with any award, right? I could probably give you a 20 minute rant about the Oscars and the lion in winter and, uh, versus Oliver in like 1968 or 1969 and, and who, who won, who should have won and why it was, it was all wrong. Right. So, I mean, nobody gets it right. There's, there's obviously more recent examples, right? Saving Private Ryan versus uh, Shakespeare and Love, for example. And Love, which that's cool. yeah. I think it's safe to say that the wargaming community is probably going to fall on the side of Saving Private Ryan there. I, I believe that to be a safe bet. So, I mean, no, no award's ever going to get it right, right? It, there's there's a, a perspective that time will grant that is a luxury that an award thing does not have unless it's one of the very rare kinds of awards that's, that's given decades after the fact or for a, uh, some work that is done over a really extended period um, where you can kind of take a, a, a look back and get a sense of what the impact of whatever work it's going to be. I mean, if, you know, I, I, I no, nobody thought the Lord of the Rings was going to be what it turned out to be, for example when it came out and certainly Tolkien didn't. So, you know, and now you can go to a casino and play a Lord of the Rings slot. <laughs> sure can. Not even kidding. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, that's, so what is, what is Gary individually prior to you taking over? What did you see? What personal use did you get out of something like the CSRs? Well, you know, I, I kind of have paid attention to a variety of awards over the years and not just the CSRs. As you'll recall, the CSRs were not a going concern for seven or eight years or whatever the, the, the hiatus was. Um, and so nobody was really paying any attention to that. And in the, in the meantime, some other things popped up, maybe in response to the absence of the, the CSR awards for what, what we call conflict simulations in this context. Uh, but I had paid fairly close attention to the, 
the Hugo Awards for science fiction, for example, uh, for several years, this this did coincide with the release of the Lord of the Rings movies. I have to say, uh, I actually held an annual Oscar party with Oscar, with like themed cocktails and stuff. So you know, I was paying fairly close attention. At, at one point, I decided I wanted to see all of the Best Picture winners. And that effort, I think I got about eight movies. And I mean, I had seen some of them, of course. But uh, I got about eight movies into that effort, and then I hit the English patient, which um, made me want to undergo euthanasia. And in fact, it's the only movie that has put me to sleep during the opening credits twice. I tried to watch it, dozed off during the opening credits. Next night, tried to watch it again, fell asleep again during the opening credits. And I finally managed to get through it with the assistance of an enormous amount of caffeine. And it is, in fact, just as boring a film as I thought it was the first time. But uh, so, so I've kind of paid attention to that, right? I mean, in in, in theory, awards, and you're never going to ag- agree. You can go through any awards list, the Oscars or the, the Hugos or the, you know, the World Fantasy Awards or whatever it is, and and pick out which things you thought were like worthy of the award in comparison to the other things that were out at that time uh, and which weren't. Um, and of course, this is the same thing with when Rolling Stone releases their greatest 100 songs of all time. And everybody looks at the top 10 and says, what? What are these people? What kind of dope are these people on? Um, so, I mean, it's the same thing. Ideally, it raises awareness and and is a conversation starter, right? So what do you think about Atlantic Chase that won all those CSR awards last year, right? We, we didn't plan that. That's just how it worked out. That's good. I, I, I couldn't help but think when you talked about English patient a few years ago, I got a wild hair up my ass to go read all the Hugo award winners starting in the 1950s. And like, there's some, I did not get very far. Mm-hmm. There's some, there's some works, you know, but that's good. We're, we're not going to talk, uh, CSRs all night. You've, there's been plenty of chatter about award uh, awards for historical board games over the last few months. We're really here to talk about our Deserted Island games. This is Deserted Island Dice afterwards, so let's get one out of the way. And I think I saved what I think will be some of the best for last. And that is, let's start with Deserted Island card game. If you could wash ashore with one card game and you can stretch this definition as you will, what would it be? Okay, so we're making assumptions here, like there's people to play with on the island. Maybe there's even decent internet on the island, which would be unlike my place right now. Um, I, I'd probably I'm not a big card game player. Okay, if uh, you know, I played the 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 round of 19 year old college student playing euchre in the dorm rooms late at night and that kind of stuff, and and that was fine and all that. Uh, but I, I'm not really into what I would consider card games and I don't have what I would consider, you know, if we think about the modern commercial space of card games that aren't just played with the standard 52 card deck. Um, the one I played a fair amount of, and I feel I could play more of, and I think I could get a, a, a decent amount of continued enjoyment out of it, considering you can buy a lot of additional material for it. It's probably the Pathfinder collectible card game. Um, it kind of boils down to it's it's a cooperative game, right? You could play it solitaire. You could play it with six people. You could probably play it with more people than that. Although balance might break down if you play it with more than that. But it's pretty flexible and it's kind of built around these story arcs, which correspond to the Pathfinder adventure paths. Um, so it's pretty fun to play. It gives you a sense of an RPG like experience in a card game. Okay. 
Very good. Not not necessarily where I saw you going with that. Uh, that's but that's certainly a choice I can I can get behind and, and respect. I want to I want to back up before, and you mentioned some of this when you're introducing yourself. But pre CSRs and pre YouTube channel and stuff. Let's let's just talk about your journey, right? And so, one of the intents of, of doing Deserted Island Dads was I was going off on uh, paternity leave, and I I just wanted to sit down with people and just recollect on memories of gaming. So, do you have an early like, did you have a, a young fondness for gaming or was it something you found later in life? No, I was, I, I started hobby gaming even pretty young, right? I mean, the only, uh, none of my family has any interest in gaming, books, anything re- re- that would require them to read or do arithmetic in their heads. So um, it was kind of a tough, tough slog at home when I was a real young kid. Uh, but, but I mean, I was always attracted to this. And then of course I had friends who would play various things. I think that the games we had at the, at home were pretty much monopoly and risk and monopoly were the only ones I remember. Um, but I, st- I, I got a, a bug up my like nine year old, butt about, um, we used to get this magazine. I think it might still be around, but it might maybe a web-based magazine called science news. And it was like this, and you know, my parents bought it because it was like 50 cents, because it's like a 16-page magazine. And um, and hey, it's science, says science on it. This is probably educational. Whatever, shut this kid up, right? They'd be they'd be delighted. So uh, so I, you know, I had some issues of this. And in one of those issues was an advertisement for strategy and tactics magazine. Oh. And I must have talked my parents into getting me like the the cheapest possible subscription, which which I don't really have a clear recollection of what that was, uh, but I and I, I don't actually remember. I remember two of the games that arrived, right? And this was with the magazine and you got the SPI flat tray with your first issue and all that stuff. And I remember the first issue was S&T, it's like 78 or something like that. So the game was Paratroop. Um, and I managed to cajole my dad into play that a couple of times and eventually played it a couple of times with friends. The other game that I remember was the China War. Um, those were in back-to-back issues. I think uh, Paratroop came first and the China War came second. And I, I don't know if these were new issues or not, because if they were, I think they're both 1979, very early 1980 games, which would put me at eight years old, eight, nine years old at the time. I was a precocious child. So so those were actually, that Paratroop was actually my first hobby game of any kind. Now, around that time, though, um, you know, we started hearing about this Dungeons and Dragons business. Okay. And there were some friends from school that were, were playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I wasn't really hooked up with those people. And they, none of them, like, lived right across the street or anything. Um, so I didn't play for what was probably, I, I assume, until about 1981. And that I can date pretty precisely to my 10th birthday. Um, so I, I kind of like, there's also an old book and I don't know what the date on this was. I, I don't really remember, but it was definitely an early memory of a book called fantasy Wargaming by Bruce Galloway, which was kind of a early reaction to D and D type of thing. Um, and there's a game in it, right? It's, it was sold as a, like an actual hard like hardcover book. Um, and there's a game in it. Uh, and that game is one of the most impenetrable games ever published, I think. And I'm not sure anybody ever actually tried to play it, but that, that was an early memory. I probably started playing D and D in 19, you know, spring, late spring, summer of 1981. 
um, within a couple of years, I had, of course, everybody moved on to AD&D as quickly as they could back then. Okay. Within a couple of years, I had started to to get more interested in other things. Probably the second RPG I was exposed to, I want to say, was probably Champions. There was a group up at the local library of significantly older people that was playing, not old, old people, but, you know, older than me at the time, that was playing Champions on a regular basis at the local library. Another early game that I was exposed to relatively early was Traveler. Um, and I think I want to say that that was right around the time when they phased out the core set that was sold in the little black books and moved to either the hardcover traveler book or the, uh, the traveler starter set. I forget which order those occurred in a lot of this, uh, to some extent, I'm piecing this together decades after the fact, right? As far as order sure. of publication, which doesn't necessarily reflect the order I experienced these things in. Um, other early uh, contact with games was, you know, Avalon Hill games. Um, by the time I got into games, uh, SPI was either dead already or very near the end of its life. Um, so by the time, you know, there was like actual like lawn mowing money or something like that, uh, that stuff was simply not available. Um, but Avalon Hill stuff was, and was pretty accessible too. You could go to, you know, you could go to Sears and buy that stuff at the time. Um, so a lot of that experience in the eighties revolved around what were the, the then popular RPGs and or Avalon Hill games. So even though I started with SPI, I'm not sure I played another SPI game until sometime in the, in the nineties. Okay. So you, you had your first hit on war games with paratroop and then mm-hmm. to me it sounds like it was a steady off and on hit ever since that first taste yes okay. uh, but i've gone i've gone in and out of war games at that time right uh around the time i hit high school uh we were doing the we we're playing a lot of risk to be honest about it but um we were also playing a fair amount of D and other other stuff RuneQuest. quest uh, at the avalon hill edition of RuneQuest. at mm-hmm. that uh was another that was came around in 87 so this would have been high school, mid high school years for me. Um, so in, in the, my high school years and 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 out of college, I just out of college, I, I didn't um, the first time anyway. Uh, I probably didn't have much contact with war games and because kind of kind of reentered war games with some other folks who played both RPGs and war games in the early nineties. Um, and that was kind of the, the status quo for quite a while until those people got other interests, kind of the driving force there decided he was, instead of playing war games to satisfy his historical urges, he was going to become a world war two reenactor. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So I did have contact with him, uh, for quite a while. And, uh, so I, I, again, kind of stopped playing war games, but I was still paying attention to what seemed at the time to be the wargaming scene, and I was still occasionally buying war games and stuff like that. And then around, oh, this is probably around 2000, 2000 to 2005, it seemed to me, I'm kind of spitballing on the exact dates here. It kind of seemed to me, it's like, you know, Avalon Hill's gone now, SPI's been gone for a long time. Um, all the war game publishers are starting to abandon these conventions that i was going to like gen con and origins um i think this is dying um and really kind of the only thing that i knew was still happening on a steady basis was advanced squad leader and i was not at the time inclined to deal with that so 
Um, so I dumped a lot of war games and just kind of lost track of things for a number of years. It was kind of it's kind of like comics now, where I, I was a big comics reader for a while. Sure. For quite a while, actually. And, and you know, it's still kind of on my radar because let's face it, I know a lot of nerds. Um, so I still hear about it, some of the stuff that goes on. It's not like I'm completely blind to what's going on, but I haven't bought a comic book in probably 20 years. Mm. Um, not because I, you know, decided that. It's just kind of, I, I kind of drifted away from it. And it was kind of like that with Wargaming too, right? I had, you know, I heard that GMT was starting this whole new P500 madness, for example. So, uh, but probably around that time was probably around the last time I bought anything from GMT for quite a while. Uh, but I mean, I remember when they were at Origins every year and I would buy stuff from them and for hell, for all I know, I might've, I might've met some of the big shots that, um, uh, yeah, I wish I had engaged with like Richard Berg, for instance. Sure. Um, but then I, I got back in sometime around 2010, 20, about 2007, 2000, about 2008, 2009. I started to realize that all of my interests were kind of re revolving around history. It was like reading history and playing historically flavored RPGs. And um, at the t at around that same time, I you know started thinking about going back to school and actually finishing. And so, in the course of that experience, which of course took it always takes longer than you expect it to take, right? And in my case, there was a changeover in the middle of it between. Uh, semesters or, or from quarters, academic quarters to semesters, which I think cost me about a year. But around that, in, in the middle of that experience, I'm like, hey, you know, I, I really, I'm really into history. I think I'm just going to get a history degree. Um, and, you know, that was that kind of right. And, and that started to spark, you know, a revival of interest in wargaming, which of course I assumed, well, I'm going to have to get into ASL now, aren't I? <laughs> I just started looking into that and I started looking into YouTube and seeing there's, there's kind of a lot of war. I mean, it's not a lot, a lot, but there's like way more wargaming stuff here on YouTube than I has, what was aware of with at the time, you know, we, we had Stuka Joe at the time who had sure. relatively recently done his legendary playthrough series of B-17 Queen of the Skies. Um, I want to say Callendale was was around that early. Uh, Joe Stedman was around that early. Uh -huh. Some other folks of the Derek Case was around around that time. Uh, so there, there was a decent number of folks that were like doing content. And I had already had a, a YouTube channel because I had been covering video games on the, the blog was very active for a while. This just doesn't end anymore on the subject of video games. This was kind of in the golden age of video game bloggers, right? Sure. Uh, MMORPG blogger. So I had done, I don't know, 30 or 40 videos over the course of a few years um, on various video game topics, primarily MMORPG type things. And I started doing I'm like, hell, I, you know, why not do war game videos? So I started doing it with like really stupid stuff. My very first war game video is a is like a three minute explore explanation of what's what on the Panzer Grenadier counters. Okay. And you cannot find that video nowadays because it's actually on my regular like personal channel that I had, as, you know, just a YouTube account and not like the channel I created to actually make stuff. Um, so nobody's really it's not private or anything, but nobody's really ever seen that. Um, and then I did a video on, uh, I forget how, what the sequence was here, but it was probably the hunters or possibly a distant plane, uh, that like, I like, Hey, somebody watched this, right? <laughs> um, I did, I did this 
like epic 60 plus episode playthrough of of Hearts of Iron 3, which is a video game World War II. It's that was fairly wargaming at the time. And, you know, this is like a 65 episode thing. And it it probably took me 100 hours to play. And it was minimally edited because I don't didn't really roll that way. Um, so it was, a, you know, a decent time commitment to do. And, and the, v- the views per video were like six, six people have watched this video in the three months since it was released. Um, but then I did the, the, one of the early videos, either a distant plane or the hunters or something like that, which I like went to the local store and I'm like, Hey, there's like, there's like 20 war games here. And those were very early pickups. Once I got back in, of course I dumped a lot, but not all, thankfully, not all of my war games in the, the dead years there. Um, so I have since reacquired a bunch of them. So I, I don't, I'm reluctant to sell anything anymore unless I'm positive that I, I'm not going to want it later on. But uh, one of those like took off and it's like, Hey, there's like 150 people have watched this thing. This is like, so I'm, I'm, maybe I should make another one. I made another one. I made another one. And it's, you know, now it's, it's been, you know, officially 15 plus years since the start of the blog. And then another, you know, it was probably two years after that, that I started the YouTube channel. And, and now I'm like over a thousand videos. So and, and I have been covering war games and, uh, like I said, the occasional sci-fi or RPG thing uh, for, you know, close to 10 years on YouTube. So, uh, and, you know, so, for some reason, people choose to watch that stuff in their free time. I can't yeah, explain right? it. I mean, I'm still, this isn't a, an ego stroke or anything. I, I legitimately mean this every time I say it, that it's still humbling to me that people even... I don't want to speak for you, but I still just find it shocking. Like, cause you know, I have this background, right? Like my first podcast was my brother and I doing retro video games and I still love retro video games, but it's just, there's so many, so many things you can talk about. And then I did comics and yeah, the, you know, you see those really minuscule numbers and then history on the table. Like it's still, when I see those, I'm just like, holy shit. And it's not, come on we're not i'm not fooling anyone here it's not groundbreaking or anything but it is i love doing this and it's so fun and i think i don't again i don't want to speak for you but it appears you're not slowing down at all and as a matter of fact it really like i've noticed at least or at least maybe i'm just more aware like a giant ramp up in everything you're doing on your channel and that's that's really cool so i oh there's been a a bit of a dip over the last five months or so actually oh really for a couple yeah for a couple reasons one one is the you know, the Charles S. Roberts award sucked a lot of the oxygen out of this this place uh, beginning in October and really running through probably January. And that's that's uh, less now because of the way we've set things up so that it's not like, holy cow, I have 100 hours of work on this to, that I have to get done by like the end of, you know, 10 days from now. Um, so we're, we're going to try and avoid that. And part of it is that we bought a house and moved, and that was a, a huge time sink. And, you know, getting everything unboxed, which is, by the way, still not done. Um, the war games are all unboxed and have been unboxed for just a moment. But uh, the uh, RPGs are not quite unboxed and shelved yet. All right. I believe I believe we are recovered from this technical snafu. You could put that in the blooper reel if you want. I don't mind. <laughs> no, that's fine. Well, I think you were you were you were mid thought there, but um, well, I hope things do ramp up. I, th- I some of this is is just my awareness because my but you know my introduction to, to war gaming was around the time of the U.S. Civil War release, and so I'm 
I'm just a young pup in this hobby and you've experienced many more iterations. And I have this kind of nebulous question I want to ask you, but I I do want to knock a a game out. And I think it's one that, again, saving the juicy ones for last. So let's go ahead and knock out, if you wash the shore with a game, a non-war game board game, what would you wash the shore with? Well, that's a great question. Uh, The wise guy of me wants to say Twilight Struggle. Hey, um, got but, him. <laughs> but I'm um, well. You know, I'm just poking fun at Twilight Struggle at this point. I I almost did a game store review of a local game store's war game selection, uh, with to something to the effect of Ah, they they only had three war games, but they had Twilight Struggle too. Um, <laughs> but uh, so and, and then you know a game that's uh, a, a game I might otherwise favor something like War of the Ring. Uh, the the more recent one from Fantasy Flight or Ares or whoever the hell's doing it now. Uh, that's a really good game. I've played that, but I, you know, BGG calls it a war game, and and I'm inclined to not be sufficiently energized to argue about it. Um, I am not. I have have sort of limited bandwidth to work with here, right? Between the you know the house and the family and the channel and the CSR awards and work and you know a, a, a variety of other and I'm you know miraculously somehow still managing to actually play games at least once a week. So my my bandwidth has has is is pretty narrow, right? So I I found myself dealing with that by sort of slicing things away that I'm less into, um, and so I'm I'm really pretty tightly focused right now on war games and specific rpgs um so this is another space where there's like this whole universe of things that have released in the last 20 years a couple of which i've played right i mean i'm not i'm not like a a hermit here i've played terraforming mars and i've played a few of these other things uh but very few of those things have i said after playing for the first time have i said you know i i need to go order that cuz that was a really cool experience one of the few things that that did happen with is lords of waterdeep okay which is a wizards of the coast game it is a straight worker placement euro set in the forgotten realms and i'm not the biggest fan of dnd wizards of the coast or the forgotten realms but it's a lot of fun to play. It has uh, good mechanics and it has a good amount of good Forgotten Realms flavor. Um, so it is n- not unlike, say, something like the Pathfinder Adventure card game, where it does kind it's not an RPG, but it replicates a lot of elements of the RPG experience. Lords of Waterdeep is not like that. It is a worker placement game. You know you're playing a worker placement game. It does not feel like an RPG in any way. It just has some of the color and flavor and background and all that that is associated with Waterdeep and the Forgotten Realms in particular. But it's great. Um, There is an expansion, which is one of those rare expansions that does not feel uh, rare in my experience, that does not feel like it adds bloat to the game. Um, It adds cool things uh, but not too much and they have somehow managed to only come out with that one expansion and i assume at this point that they're not going to come out with another one yeah you know it's a little bit surprising because just the trend on on that side of the hobby i think has been to just pump out you know milk milk those cows so they're dry and it's wizards of the coast so like yeah you know that's that's also a little surprising Um, not exactly shy about sucking at the customer teat so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the 
and they've done plenty of other board games and uh, board sure. games and D&D board games specifically. They've done a pile of them since War Lords of Waterdeep. Uh, and I've played a couple of those and, you know, something like uh, Wrath. Uh, there's I forget which one it is and I'll get the title wrong. But there's another one of those D&D board games that I played. And it was, you know, after having had happy, had a real good time with Lords of Waterdeep. And it's basically Axis and Allies with little plastic dragons, mm-hmm. um, and, which is fine. It was fine. There was nothing wrong with it, but I didn't run out and buy it either. Lords of Waterdeep, I went out and bought. Well, great. Well, the good news is, Gary, on the island, all we have is time. So, Lord of Waterdeep. Oh, that's the most precious. Water. I mean, I'm not even kidding or be, trying to be facetious here. Time, as you as you get older, I think, everybody will agree with me of a certain age, uh, time becomes the most valuable currency, right? Sure. That's the, the, you know, it's the time that I'm most poor on. Yeah, I mean, I'm, we can go very deep on 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 time after a certain age. I'm I'm sure, but I do have I do have another just kind of more nebulous question, bringing it back to war games, and and I'll just clarify here. You know, we have this conversation about Twilight, or you bring up Twilight Struggle, War of the Ring, or whatever, for purposes of the podcast, so I don't have to say it over and over again. Generally, when we're talking war games, and I think this is for both of us, we're talking about the broader reach of war games historical board games consume games whatever definition you want to use uh because that'll am, come up later when we do the hot seat that uh, like i don't want to say 10 times over like what's your favorite war game historical board game conflict simulate <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah i mean so uh, to be honest about it th- this isn't a question i personally am terribly concerned about right um, yes. i know i you know i poke fun at it and i hope people know that i'm poking fun at it um and I, you know i like twilight struggle um but whether a game is like a war game or is war game adjacent or is a semi war game or pseudo war game or fake war game or what, who cares, man? Right. Thank um, you. It, to me, it's more important. Now, there's a there's a there's a parallel line of thought here, too. But it, to me personally, as a gamer, it's more important that the game be fun, that it be interesting. A lot of that's based on topics. Some of it's based on mechanics. Some of it's based on physical appeal. Those are all more important things to whatever than whatever arbitrary category we want to put it in. Which, yes. you know, recognize that the, these definitions have shifted over the years radically, right? Which brings up the other dimension that I unfortunately have to consider, which is mm-hmm. How does this relate to whether a game is eligible for a, an award for a best such and such conflict oh. simulation? Right. Sure. So that that is unfortunately a thing that we sometimes have to decide. Um, but it's it's going to be my preference to make those. Well, so so my preference is going to be to democratize that decision. Um, so that I am not the per- the one person in a closed room somewhere in a ba- literally in a basement right now, uh, making these decisions based on God knows what criteria that such and such a game is eligible or, or isn't eligible. Mm-hmm. Um, that seemed to me to be completely untransparent and 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 undesirable for that reason alone. Um, and I frankly want to hear what other people think too, right? I, I I will be happy to change my opinion on the face of new information. Um, so, you know, that's that's kind of an angle that has to, that that I am am now in a position where I have to think about. But personally, I am going to probably lean toward 
inclusivity in that definition. Yeah. Yep. Uh, because I have seen the absolute fruitlessness of having this continued, like actual, not not two guys having fun, uh, but like actual vitriolic arguments erupt over this nonsense. This is in no sense wor- worthy of that level of attention or acrimony. So I am happy to say, you know what? Does it feel like a, a war game to you? Cool. Preach Good enough though. for me. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree a thousand percent. I I I and that actually was not the nebulous question that I was going to ask you. Um, what I was going to ask you that was just the framework of when I say war game here, broader reach, right? I have this idea in my mind whether it's right or wrong, but we're early in twenty twenty three. What kind of identity do you think our little pocket of the hobby, this war game pocket, has right now? Where do you think we're going? I I think there was this. At least when I was getting into war games, I think there was this, like, coin maybe shifted that identity a little bit, I think. I think it it allowed for new and creative approaches to war gaming. We don't have to use all these cardboard bits or all these miniature dudes. We can Eurofy, Euro gamify the, the hobby or whatnot. So do you think we're, we're kind of shifting towards a new identity? And it, whether you do or don't think that, what do you think? the 2023 identity of war game as a hobby is right now again so nebulous but so back in that fallow period that i talked about where it seemed to me and i was not alone in that i was wrong fortunately um but you know where it seemed like war gaming was in fact you know gonna be dying anytime now recognize that there have literally been people saying this stuff since like the <laughs> early 70s okay literally in 1975 there's somebody writing into the strategic review it's not even dragon magazine yet somebody writing into the strategic reviews that say that says that dnd and wargaming are dying man this thing's only a year old what do you mean it's dying they cannot keep it in in the, sh- the warehouse shelves in gary's garage so um so there's there's I think a certain amount of doom and gloom sentiment that just kind of always circulates uh, uh, in the hobby and and sometimes that can feel more justified than at other times. It certainly has felt justified to me at some, certain points in the past, and I, I think there was a real danger when um, you know where we were in the kind of that fallow time between kind of the rise of GMT as a really thriving company and the demise of Avalon Hill. And of course, again, SPI is long gone, where that like the visibility of war games dipped precipitously, particularly if you were making assumptions that you may not have questioned as assumptions at the time, like what I am seeing at Origins is reflective of the hobby, right? That turned out not to be correct. Um, not long after that, they started doing MonsterCon out in wherever it was at first. I don't know if that was Tempe or not. That's CS uh, Concert World Expo. Um, and you know, that started drawing people playing giant, you know, monster games for a week. So there, there's no question though, that over the, say the last 20 years that the, the complex, I don't want to use the word complexion. Um, but that, the sort of vibe, if you will, of the hobby has changed. I I wouldn't chalk that up to coin because twilight struggle, for example, predates okay. coin yeah twilight yep. struggle does not itself arise from the, the the timeless void right um twilight struggle harkens back to games like uh uh we the people for instance right so it's so we're we're all we're once again returning full circle to it's all mark herman's fault but i say that only partially tug-in-cheek 
so, uh, you know, but but even if you go back to like the 70s, right, where Dunnigan was doing these absolutely outside the box, not outside the box, the box fell off the boat on the way over to our shores um, and there's no box. Uh, and there's a number of examples like that where he's thinking completely in in a different space than than everybody around him. Games like and we're talking like 1970 for the origins of World War II, for example, um, uh, mid 70s, something like that for the plot to assassinate Hitler, which was a more conventional game, less conventional game than it looks than it looks like because it's played on a hex grid. But the hex grid doesn't represent a physical territory; it represents like this a political space. Um, you know, absolutely, absolutely bananas. Um, and there, there were other innovators at that time, Tom Doglish, um, uh, a, a number of other individuals that you could point to that, you know, t- t- some of whom transformed the hobby, right? Remember that n- not just in 1974, but for at least a half decade afterwards, role-playing games were not considered different from war games. They were still, cons- yeah, they were different, but they're still war games, right? Um, you know, that that identity of role-playing games as a separate, a completely separate thing really didn't even start to emerge until the early 80s, um, maybe the very late 70s. So as, and, you know, you could, you could see similar uh, sort of uh, fragmentation in uh, something like science fiction and fantasy now right you know back in the 20s when guys like clark ashton smith and hp lovecraft were writing this there was no you know hugo gernsback had just come up with the word science fiction or scientifiction or whatever the hugo was calling it um there was no notion that it was somehow well this was this is science based so this is different than this other thing which is witchcraft based it was all just weird fiction right Um, and you know, there were sort of intellectual strains of it or political strains like you might have seen out of Jules Verne or H.G. Wells, uh, and then the pulp strains. There were identifiable trends, um, but the identities of those different branches of 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 fiction into science fiction, fantasy, and horror, which you see as separate sections now in the bookstore, um, and have for some time, you know, that took time to evolve. And we're we're seeing the same type of thing in war games. Um, I have complete confidence that the hex encounter, even if we talk about straight hex encounter, no cards, a pox on your table if you bring cards to to me. Um, I, I you know none of that is uh, none of that's going to go away in my lifetime. Complete complete confidence that that traditional hex encounter stuff will outlive me because we do people don't like to recognize this but the people who don't recognize this aren't the people going to the conventions and seeing that there are in fact younger people showing up at these things from time to time uh, so it's not just old geezers um but at the same time we can also identify train uh, strains of games that that share a lot with those traditional games I, i'd include coin in that right um i think some coin games are certainly war games um along with uh, other historical games that maybe borrow some mechanical things from war games but don't really resemble war games. So I think we're we're in an evolution of a, of the war gaming space. Um, there's certainly no revolution, um, but I don't think we're in terminal decline either. Yeah, and I, that's not that's certainly not my outlook on the hobby either, but I do think in 
clearly you're way more versed at, at identifying those moments. But there are, I think, these moments. <laughs> I've had shows to prep for. <laughs> well, you, there's just you've lived them, right? I mean, if my if my intro to the hobby is U.S. Civil War and Wilderness War, which had been out for a couple of years, right? Mm-hmm. Then you you just live them and see them more. And so, uh, like identifying these moments with games that have an impact on how war games are designed. I I think it's interesting. And I think, I agree with you. I think there is, for good or for bad, I don't think it's for bad, there is a trend right now that I think is, how far can we push this? I I haven't given this much concrete thought, so so I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants here. But if I kind of look at the hobby right now, I think it's this, how can we, we're really pushing the blending. I think of things like Undaunted, or the recent announcement of a worker placement war game, right? From and, and same designers and stuff. So there, that's the current trend I see. And then, of course, you have all the continued. I mean, I really think we're at a, a high point, but you know, I haven't really experienced a low point, so I don't know what we're at right now. But I do kind of think that's the identity I would somewhat assign to our hobby. I don't know. Well, I mean, there's also, I mean, clearly, as you know, as a part of larger trends, there's been, there has been a renaissance in interest in war games. Okay, sure. Even yeah. if we just use our narrow definition of war games, right? Um, and and that has been largely assisted by two big factors. Um, one, maybe three, if you if you count COVID. Um, the two big factors I'm thinking of are the more the broader board game boom, sure. Um, which I think as as a number of uh, folks have tried to make the case has been largely in reaction to video games, right? Because, you know, everybody was predicting for years that, Hey, these analog tabletop things, these are going to go away. The computer games are are going to, we're just all going to be playing computer games in five years. I mean, Jim Dunnigan was saying that in like 1981. Um, I'm pleased to report that Mr. Dunnigan was incorrect. So, <laughs> It, so to some extent, right, and I, and I completely feel like this. I spend like twelve hours a day in front of a computer. I I I'll be honest. I have not part of it. Said my my computer sucks, but I haven't touched a video game in six months. Yeah. Uh, not 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 booted, not loaded, not nothing, not not played nothing. Um, and I'm not like philosophically opposed to video games or anything. It's just that I already spend 12 hours a day in front of this computer. I don't want to. I want to like go out and cut the grass or something, you know. <laughs> and if I can, you know, get out of the house and and go and play a game with some people without the computer in front of me for a few hours, that's great. So that's that's certainly a factor, right, in this sort of analog game renaissance that we're experiencing right now. And, and you know, the rising tide that has lifted all boats has included not just board games and Euro games, but also RPGs and war yes. games. Yes. Uh, yeah, it really has. And I think, you know, in, in past episodes of, of this particular series, we've I've kind of talked about, like, why do we play war games? And obviously there's historical interest, but then there's war games are escape, right? And I think that's an interesting, not only is it an escape from all the, the stresses and things going on in our life and the world or whatever, but you're right. It's still very much an escape from, because I'm right there with you. Like, my job is an office job. Constantly in front of the computer. And having the step away and be able to just touch things and have that tactile feel and not be in front of a screen. Yeah. There's, there's a whole nother reason why we do this. 
All right. We still have we still have three three deserted island games to, oh, to knock out. Let's uh let's do again working towards quote unquote best for last. Uh deserted island miniature game. If you could walk ashore with the minute wash ashore with the miniatures game. Again, you can stretch the definition or you can take the standard approach. I'm gonna select whichever miniatures game comes included with a revolver and one bullet. <laughs> Not like a raft or something. <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> If I'm forced to play a miniatures game, escape is there is no escape. So, so I, okay. you know, I, I again, I'm 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 poking fun here, right? Because sure, I, sure, I have sure. no actual axe to bear against miniatures games, um, but I I simply do not have the bandwidth for miniatures games. Right. That said, um, I played you know 40k when it, when 40k came out as a hardcover book called Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader, um. And I continued to play 40K here and there for quite a while. Um, I played War Machine um, when that was hot. Um, I played and actually still have a large army for sitting unpainted in a plastic box in the garage. Um, uh, uh, The uh, Lord of the Rings, mini, whatever it was called, the Lord of the Rings miniatures game from Games Workshop, uh, which was fun, you know, when I played it. But as, you know, as time has gone on and my, you know, personal, mental and financial bandwidth has become smaller and smaller, um, miniatures games were kind of like the first thing to get excised. So I I have no, I mean, certainly the the trouble is I'd be given up another hobby to to do miniatures, right? right? Because miniatures are themselves a hobby. That said, if uh, if we're counting a game that has miniatures that I shouldn't feel obligated to paint and doesn't require an ever-revolving treadmill of new miniatures purchase, um, I'd probably lean into that War of the Ring, that recent Great. War of the Ring 2nd Edition from Ares or whoever it is. I've played that. It's very good. Awesome. I think that's a perfectly valid choice, and uh, I like it. So other than, you know, the the one with the gun and the bullet. All right, you spent a good amount of time talking about RPGs, and I do find that that link in common lineage uh, from from modern RPGs and modern war games and how different they are now. But it is it is interesting to hear about their their shared origin, right? Um, I am worried that that traveler shelf is going to fall on you one day, but it is much sturdy. It, that is an artifact of the fo- <laughs> of the of the photo. Because I, I, I was looking at the photo after I had posted it, and I'm like, is that thing Boeing already? What the hell? And I, I, I like went and checked it, and it is not. That is just an artifact of the photo. It is it is great. That said, Good. there's a lot of weight on that shelf. It, it looked like it, and I don't want to make any assumptions, so I will ask, just so we keep making progress, because we still have plenty of stuff to talk about, is what's your deserted island RPG? I mean, obviously it's Traveler, Okay. Um, okay, well, let me let me interject here because I I've dabbled in some traveler, and my question for you, and I know you're going to explain it here, why traveler in particular versus there is a worlds and universes that we can even begin to list them all that you could use for RPGs. So why traveler as as your wash ashore? So as part of my sort of narrowing bandwidth project. I also stopped buying RPG stuff, except for just a few product lines. Okay. Those product lines are pretty much um, basic role-playing from Chaosium and a few other publishers. And and in this context, that means Call of Cthulhu and RuneQuest and Mythros, mm-hmm. I suppose. 
okay. Traveler, obviously, and Harn from Columbia Games, and in parallel, Calestia Publications. Um, I'll occasionally buy something else in PDF, but I'm not I'm not buying physical product uh, uh, for anything else at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's certainly a lot of other RPGs that I like. Um, there are other RPGs that I would be happy to play. Um, we're about to start a monthly GURPS campaign, for example, um, nice. which, you know, I'm hoping, you know, it's on the calendar. We're using a calendar now to manage this stuff. So, but Traveler gives you something that almost no RP, other RPG does. It's got solitaire capability. You can keep yourself entertained with Traveler without other people there. And that comes in the form of a variety of mini games that have been built into Traveler from the very beginning. Character creation is a mini game. You might die, right? That's that mm-hmm. hasn't actually been true since Classic Traveler, but you know we still say that. Um, and it's it's optional in a variety of other editions. Um, you can generate universes. Traveler gives you like a complete universe generation kit right in those three little black books, again, from day one. In addition to that, it's still a really robust RPG, right? And and if you don't think it's robust enough, you can just pick uh, any of the 11 other versions of Traveler, some of which are very close to the original and some of which are radically different. So you have kind of a, a huge system space to work in, right? And I could also cheat and include GURPS Traveler, which means I'm including GURPS, which means I can use that for anything. Um, but, and and I have everything ever published for GURPS Traveler. So um, it, I also like science fiction gaming. I think it's not, I, I think it is an underrepresented genre in RPGs. Um, and my personal tastes in science fiction are, I won't say 100% aligned with Traveler, but are completely compatible with Traveler. Okay. Right? Um, so as, as a science fiction system, uh, it is not generic, just like D&D is not actually generic fantasy. D&D is D&D fantasy, and Traveler is Traveler science fiction. There are built-in assumptions and an implied setting in those games that you're not going to get away from. Uh, but but I'm right. comfortable with, with the the implied setting in Traveler and the, uh, the assumptions that it's built on. Um, and in the case of Traveler, they actually under the people making it actually understood those assumptions and and leaned into them. And I, I think the I think Gary and Dave designing D and D kind of stumbled into those dimensions, and then they evolved over the course of the first several years of D and D's life. Um, I could you know I can hack Traveler to do various things. There are fantasy hacks of Traveler, for example. Um, they're weird, but that doesn't mean they're not worthwhile. The Sword of Cepheus is a recent uh, Cepheus engine-based uh, fantasy, sword and sorcery-flavored fantasy hack of Traveler that I could use that for all kinds of stuff. Um, so I mentioned that, that you know, at various times, I've sold a lot of games over the years. I mean, I've been doing this for over 40 years now, and, uh, you know, I've sold and dumped a lot of stuff. And, and, you know, sometimes the motivation for that is, hey, this new thing came out. I really want to buy this new thing, but I don't have the money for this new thing. So I'll sell some of my old games to, to buy the new thing. Mm-hmm. And that, that, of course, means that a lot of my uh, old stuff, like all my old D&D stuff, I, I have a decent D&D collection. I've got like all the first edition AD&D core books, for example. But I dumped I dumped it all and and have reacquired that over the, you know, slowly over the years, um, you know, ending some years ago. 
I never dump my traveler stuff. I have almost no RPG products uh, from the early 80s that I that I had back, that were like, this was my copy back in 1982, except Traveler. I never got rid of anything. So it's it's not like, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm new to it. I'm not the world's greatest uh, authority on the official Traveler universe or any of that stuff. But uh, but I have been a big Traveler fan for a very long time. I've played every edition except Hero Traveler, which I've never even seen or owned. Um, and I, I like the system. I like the setting. I like the dynamism involved in the random character creation. Um, it's the system that after, you know, decades of thinking about it led me to believe that the, the problems I always had with D and D character generation were not problems inherent to character generation randomness, but to D and D's implementation of those ideas and the system that accompanied it. Uh, I think that works, all that works great in traveler. I'm happy to deal with the characters occasionally dying before you start playing. I I think those are all great reasons. I as someone who has only very briefly experienced Traveler, and if I'm new to war games, I'm even newer to RPG and like just like three years worth of RPG in here. Uh I find it fascinating. And then I find it really interesting that you're in my mind, Traveler is this massive universe with all this lore and universe generation and stuff you can do that has been around and people know about it. But it's also sounding like just even as a system, there's so many cool levers to pull, and that's why you'd watch the show with it. And I think there's probably enough books and content out there that you could build an escape raft for everyone on the island. Plus, if paper floats, yeah, I, I might be able to. Oh, yeah, we'll need some, like, paste or something, I'm, I'm sure, yeah. but, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, mechanically, you know, it's it's different in each system, right? But even if you look at, you know, aside from the sort of actual branches like GURPS Traveler or Hero Traveler or whatever, it's remained relatively consistent as a system. Um, it's a 2D6 skill-based system. It was one of the first, sk like, skill-based RPGs back in 1977. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot to like about it mechanically. But even if you have a... You think, like, say, Classic Traveler is just a little too skeletal for you, which is a, an a, a opinion I could certainly sympathize with. Well, you got other options. You've got Cepheus Engine or travel, uh, either the Mongoose Editions or 4th Edition or, you know, whatever. So it, it's kind of got, even though it's not a universal system, it's got a lot of different aspects and themes you can explore with it. And that's one of the reasons why I like it. I also really like the official Traveler universe, but I also really kind of want to design my own universe for it too. So, well, I assume that was going to be your your choice for RPGs. I'm slightly transparent when it comes to answering this particular question. Now, I have a guess as to what at least maybe a series you would pick for the next one, um, but I'll let you. Tells what it is. So if you wash ashore with one deserted island war game, what would it be? So it's funny you should ask because we actually had this conversation. Uh, I oh, think man. just before you had asked me, uh, yeah, actually about a week before you had asked me uh, to be on the show with this pitch, uh, I had had the same conversation at Winterfest. 
So I'm curious because I, 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 if you, I, you know, I'm going to give you the same answer I gave two or three weeks ago because my my opinion hasn't changed since then. Um, but if you ask me three weeks from now, it might change. So, so before I tell you, and I have, I have, I have, I could, I have an alibi, so I could verify that this was what I said two weeks ago. I would like to hear what your guess is. Okay, so this is. This is from my viewpoint looking in, and I could be way off base here. So I'm going to qualify here because since you're you're holding me to it, I'm going to guess that you're going to pick, and maybe I'm wrong here, like one of the big monster OCS titles, but but maybe not. Now I'm thinking maybe not. So uh, this is actually a pretty legitimate guess. However, I would try and squeeze in the technicality of including the entire OCS system. Rather than a single title, because that's one of the attractions, right? It's I can play East Front, I can play West Front, I can play North Africa, I can play Burma, um, I can play all. Because to to me, a system is tightly constructed and and managed. Not all systems are this is true of, but uh, OCS has always been. You know, there's always been kind of a guiding hand behind it, right? OCS Volume Three feels like OCS Volume Eighteen. Right. I can sit down and bust out Hubes Pocket tomorrow and then, you know, finish that up and play the Hubes Pocket scenario in third winter. And it'll feel it's going to be different because it's two different designers. And the ma- I mean, the maps are slightly different. The OBs are slightly different, but it's going to be the same game. Right. It's going to feel like the same game. I'm going to be using the same rules. So I tend to cl- to classify games in terms of systems right and and so and it's it's that's very attractive because it allows me to learn one system and play a bunch of different games oh of course and you know certain some series games are not that tightly constrained right Uh, coin games for example i think differ way more from game to game than oc one ocs game does to another ocs game and that's not to say there's not like completely new out of left field things in in any given ocs game sometimes there are but it still feels like the same game you're not playing you're not changing any of the underlying assumptions or mechanics um you're only changing game specific details coin games aren't like that the um no Peace Without Spain series from Compass is not like that. Um, other series that are like that would be the Grand Tactical series. A lot, a lot from MMP. So I'll also say uh, CSS, the, another Adam Starkweather series from Compass. Um, the Library of Napoleonic Battles. Um, Next War. Those, those games. The GMT Next War series, yes. I haven't played enough of those to have a really firm opinion on it. I've only played like one uh, intro scenario from India, Pakistan. Um, but it feels like it too. So like a, a tightly constrained series, I I'd be inclined to count the, for, for purposes of, you know, our hypothetical discussion here. Um, I'd be inclined to count the coin games as individual games, but the OCS games as a series where I'm just buying an additional box with additional scenarios and components. Okay, Gary, hold on. I, I, that was very moving and convincing. You get one box. <laughs> this said, OCS is not my choice. Okay, okay. I just think that OCS is a reasonable. I think it's a reasonable decision, and I could I could easily take a case blue or a third winner and and play it for a long time and be satisfied with that. Sure. My choice three weeks ago, and I think I'm still in the same place today, is World in Flames, okay. which is a, which is a one box solution. Sure. Um, and one in one of three different boxes, in fact. 
Um, and that's because it's kind of a kind of a sandbox, yep. right? It's a it's a a World War II creation kit. Um, which, and if you're talking that my one box is the super deluxe, that includes days of the decision too. So my world war two may differ dramatically from yours. Um, I think it's got a robust enough system that's, that's been tested and refined over the years. Not that it's perfect, but you can always make house rules on the Island. Um, but, and it, you know, in fact, there's a, a huge number of what are effectively house rules included in the book, uh, that you can mix and match from a, as you desire. Um, I, I feel like if I were a, a one game person that in sort of my space and games that I've played and that I know I enjoy, there's relatively few games. I'm, I'm not fundamentally a, a, a narrow focus gamer by disposition, right? I, I like to play a lot of different stuff, which I have to say the thing I have to fight now because I don't have the time to play a lot of different stuff. Right. There so, with you. um, there's relatively few games in my space um, that I think I could, if if I really had to, I could just play this. Uh, OCS is probably on that short list. Um, there might be other games on that short list, but, but I think again, today, if you ask me two weeks from now, I might say something different, but today I think, I think my answer is world in flames. I think I'd be satisfied with that. It's got the replay value uh, where I could basically play it forever. And the fact that it takes a year to play any individual game certainly helps too. Um, But I think World in Flames. I think that's a great choice. I mean, a sandbag, a sandbox choice is, is certainly the way to go. As soon as I really started to dive into OCS, I think, yeah, is it a fantastic system with great game design? Absolutely. But if you're stuck on a deserted island, like, you want something not that OCS doesn't have a depth of, of stuff to explore. You want something that's going to allow you to play in your own little sandbox. And I think world in flames is one of the best examples of that in historical board gaming. Solid choice. Solid choices all around. Thank you. Okay, I, like I said, I gave this a little bit of thought. Well, that's good. No, I think that's uh, I think that's a great choice. I'm trying to, we, we have an office administrator now for the podcast and I have suggested to them that they need to uh, make a list of everyone else's pick because I was never smart enough to actually start writing these down because I, it would be interesting to be like, you can watch Ashore with five games, but you cannot pick something someone else has already picked. Never going to happen. But I, I want to say when we had Paul on, he might have also picked World in Flames, but can't remember. What matters is you did. So it's on the island now. Well, that's awesome. We will we will be set. Okay, Gary. The next the next part of our show is is the hot seat. Which, if you're f- not familiar, it's just lightning round questions. So, don't give me any thought. Just just follow your gut. Rapid fire. Bring it. All right. All right. You're ready. Here we go. Favorite military topic to play a war game on. Napoleonics. Favorite scotch. Mm, Kalila. Best gaming experience. Mm, playing with Gary Gygax game you've always wanted to play but haven't artesia adventures in the known world (laughs) favorite comic book character Mm, captain america favorite war game series ocs favorite game to ever win a csr award Ooh, empire of the sun i believe won a csr award 
What war game series has missed for you? Has missed for me. Combat Commander. Big miss. Favorite topic to read about? Uh, at the moment, Napoleonics. Finland or Russia? Well, boy, that's tough with no context, but we're going to... Today, in 2023, we're saying Finland. Best city to get barbecue in? Um, Charlotte, North Carolina. Favorite war game scale? Favorite wa- operational. Cl- not even close. Game on your table right now? Uh, on the table right now is Last Blitzkrieg from the gamers. Awesome. Smoky Jazz Bar or Tiki Bar? Smoky Jazz Bar. Fiction or nonfiction? Mm, say I, lately, nonfiction. If you and I made a band, what would it be called? Sausage Wagon. <laughs> Not right. Okay. Uh, last great book you read? Oh, last great book I read. Uh, it's been a while since I've finished a book. Um, the Family Trade from Charles Strauss. Favorite book? Favorite book is. Ooh, Lord of Light by Roger Zelazny. Okay, I'll have to write that one down. Who wins the 2023 Stanley Cup? The Detroit Red Wings. Totally <laughs> Swing and a miss. Uh, favorite Burt Reynolds role? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> uh, what's his name for Boogie Nights, I'm sure? Alien or Aliens? Alien. Pacific or Band of Brothers? Band of Brothers. Scream or I know what you did last summer. Uh, don't care. I'll say scream because I remember the mask. Scotch or bourbon? Scotch. Chester Nimitz or MacArthur? Chester Nimitz. Game Anybody wanna... but Doug out Doug. <laughs> Game you want to play in 2023? Russian campaign is at the top of the list at the moment. Favorite RPG class to play? Favorite RPG, I prefer classless RPGs, but if we're talking, uh, if we're counting traveler careers as classes, The Merchant. Awesome. Best sports movie ever made? Major League. Character or DM? DM. GM, but. Sure. Fantasy or sci-fi? Sci-fi. World War I or World War II? World War II. Favorite MMP game? Favorite MMP game? Jeez, uh, at the moment, I'm going to say Last Blitzkrieg. Favorite GMT game? Favorite GMT game is Carthage, um, the first Punic War. Awesome. Favorite compass game? Favorite compass game. Uh, it's not out yet. Uh, Prelude to Revolution. Ooh, yes. Great choice. Uh, what's a war game hidden gem you'd recommend to our listeners? Ooh, good call. Uh, at the moment, I'm I'm researching the the virtues of Prussia's glory, one and two from GMT. Uh, favorite obscure military topic or battle? Obscure military topic. I'm I tempted to be a wise guy and say the Battle of the Bulge. Nobody's ever played a game about that. Um, uh, well, obscure in that I've never seen a war game on it. The Anglo-Dutch Wars. Okay. Uh, favorite war movie? Favorite war movie is A Bridge Too Far. If you could design an OCS game about any topic, what would it be? 19, uh, late 1944 to 19, uh, mid-1945 East Front. What board game designer makes the best breakfast? 
I have no idea, but I heard a podcast one time where Gene Billingsley okay. made Harold Buchanan breakfast. So I'm going to have to assume that it's Gene. I remember that one. Um, what's the greatest game ever made? The greatest game ever made. There is a right answer to this. It, there is a right answer, and I'm not going to give you the right answer. I'm going to give you <laughs> my greatest game ever made, which is probably World in Flames. All right. You can breathe. That's it. That's all it is. That's it. That's it. Oh. What was the book you said? Your favorite book? Lord of Light by Roger Zelazny. Lord of Light. Check it out. Awesome. Well, Gary, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It was a lot of fun. Um, I, your your wealth of knowledge just in like the the history of historical gaming is uh, is rather quite impressive. I Matt, really it's not that. about that. What it's about is that I love to hear myself talk. <laughs> I mean, I really enjoy that. Seriously. Well, I really, I enjoyed uh, listening and, and having it uh, thoroughly. Uh, right now, it. my wife can hear me in her office and she's shaking her head. Narcissist. <laughs> Where can everyone find you? Plug your stuff. Easiest way to find me is at Ardwolf's Lair. If you search anywhere, Google, YouTube, whatever, Ardwolf's Lair, A-R-D-W-U-L-F, you will come up with me. Uh, I'm also on Twitter and uh, not every social media platform, but every social media platform that a person of my age understands uh, <laughs> as Ardwolf or some variation thereof. Love it. All right. Thanks. 